care for all Your bros can suck my balls Fuck your reply guys Please don't fuck your reply guys Just listen to reply guys Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Reply Guys. I'm very excited today. We have a little bit of a a different uh, interview um, planned for this week that just kind of came up uh, organically, which was very cool. Um, The one of the hosts of the Conspirituality podcast is here with us today, Derek Barris. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Julia. Um, So Derek and I were connected because I just i'll do a, a quick little story time i there's a, a a woman that i went to high school with who's pretty smart um was always like a pretty smart and thoughtful person and uh she got very into you know yoga and holistic wellness and all of that and i have increasingly been seeing her posting um things on social media about being anti-mask and anti-vaccine and just it's getting larger and larger to kind of like a distrust of information writ large um and it's headed in a pretty particular direction she's now reposting memes from like liberty conservative personal liberty conservative meme factories uh and so i just kind of got on twitter and spouted off about it and i was like why is there no information about this like yoga holistic wellness to right-wing alt-righty pipeline and everyone was like oh just listen to the conspirituality podcast uh and so uh and then uh my my guest today responded with a a link to the uh absolute treasure trove of resources that there are that I didn't know existed about uh about this topic in particular so that is how we became connected and i said well okay this is very embarrassing that I just didn't do a cursory research of my own. I just went to Twitter and was like, why isn't anyone talking about this? And that is embarrassing, certainly. Um, But I'm very appreciative to have uh, access to that information uh, now. And I will um, include the link that was provided to me in, in our show notes this week. Um, but basically the entire conceit of Conspirituality, the podcast, uh, that now has over 75 ep- episodes is exactly this. It's kind of exploring the connections from the spiritual wellness world to the conspiracy theory off the often right wing conspiracy theory world. Uh, and yeah, what is. What brought I, I know that you that the three of you are kind of in in different spaces, you're in different geographical locations. What was it that brought you all together? How did this podcast come about? Julian and I are both in Los Angeles. Uh, Matthew is in Toronto. When I moved to Los Angeles in 2011, I was very quickly immersed in the yoga community. I was the creative director of a 
pretty large scale yoga music festival. And I had been teaching yoga at Equinox for over a decade before that in New York City. So I became quickly tapped into the scene here. And Julian is someone I met early. I've long advocated for political engagement in the yoga community, which is something that was not present with a lot of people. And Julian, myself, and three other yoga instructors started a website called Yoga Brains back in 2012, where we talked about not only the lack of political and social engagement and understanding in the yoga space, but also um, lack of critical thinking around Mm -hmm. that. And besides us, there was our friends um, off the mat into the world who were doing real groundwork in political and social engagement and improvement. But that was really it. And the site ran for about a year and we had a small following, but people really weren't that interested in thinking about politics and yoga and how they affect one another and what what the implications are. Uh, Yoga in America is often practiced, at least on the higher influencer level, from a very privileged perspective and place. And uh, the people who do it, it is open to a much broader range of people now, but it still tends to resonate most with particularly privileged groups. And we were just pointing those out, and those groups don't really like to know about those things. But again, there was a small audience until the pandemic hit. And so when you have a group of people who are politically tapped out, who probably have never voted in their life, they don't know who their local representative is, they've never gone to a zoning board meeting, they don't know what actual (laughs) regional politics is about. And I'll just say I started my career as a regional journalist in New Jersey, so Mm -hmm. I was going to the zoning board meetings and school board meetings. And when the pandemic hit, you have people all of a sudden being told they can't do something probably for the first time in their lives. And where do they turn? They turn to Instagram. They don't read politics. They don't read the news. They don't read public health or scientific studies. They scroll through Instagram all the time. And so that's where they found themselves. Uh, And then when the documentary, I say that word loosely, uh, Plandemic came out and Mm -hmm. it had the impact that it did, I reached out to Julian and Matthew and asked them to be on my old podcast, which was just my personal podcast. And we had a really good conversation, so I asked them to return the following week. We had another really good conversation, and I said, why don't, you know, my personal podcast is just for fun, but we actually have some conversations with impact right here, and we we have a word that has existed for a decade, but that people don't really know about, but in our own ways, we've all been covering uh, for a long time. Why don't we make a thing out of this? And we did, and that's where it happened and took off from. It really is, uh, it's a great resource and it's also just a great kind of philosophical um, community clearly to, in- to engage with. There's, it's a lot of uh, heavy references to philosophy along with science um, that I find really uh, instructive. And your most recent episode um, was uh, one of your co-hosts interviewed Lee McIntyre, who's the author of Post-Truth. And it's kind of gets exactly to um, the genesis of how you and I became connected in the first place, which was 
you know, kind of how to talk to someone in your life who is a science denier. Um, and it's a really great conversation. I encourage all of our listeners to listen to it as well. Um, but there are, there were a few things that I thought were, um, were of note. One being the ways in which the scientific method is kind of like used against itself, um, from conspiracy theorists, uh, or not the scientific method, but one of the principles of science being like, uh, you know, the fallibility principle that no matter how much evidence you have, uh, your thesis can always be proven wrong. Um, even though there is, you know, as your co-host pointed out, there's still the principle of likelihood, um, which, you know, likelihood is more, for lack of a better word, likely than fallibility when you have uh, a preponderance of evidence. Um, but one of the things that I have struggled with, and I think that a lot of us probably have this on the left, is that a lot of the critiques, and it's maybe it's not just the left, but a lot of the critiques um, that exist within these conspiracy theories do always begin with some sort of grain of truth. Um, like particularly about the for-profit healthcare system that we have here in America um, and the ways in which the, the ways in which science has in the past been used uh, for nefarious ends against poor and marginalized groups. That's completely true, but it is being... The narrative that they are using uh, that evidence for is obviously false. So I think this is something that we come we come up with we come up against a lot, which is like, yes, there are these facts in iso facts don't exist in a vacuum. And, you know, it's like if someone says, you know, a statistic about black on black crime, it's technically like, while it may be technically true in isolation, what is the narrative that you're trying to sell with that? Uh, what is the story that you're trying to tell? Um, so yes, there is a, I mean, we talk about it on the show all the time, the, like the moral bankruptcy of a for-profit healthcare system. So it's, it's hard to hear some of those critiques, which we do think of as valid being used to support a conspiracy theory. What you're getting at is one of the main topics I repeat on the podcast. Sometimes because we are all pro-vaccine, we've often been called shills for big pharma. Mm -hmm. My last book that came out a year ago was on psychedelic therapy and the potential applications for psychedelics in mental health therapy specifically. And I realized as I was writing it, if I wanted to talk about what it was what psychedelics could replace, I would have to go into a history of the medications that we currently have. Mm -hmm. And 
I have serious reservations about a lot of the ways that we use benzodiazepines and SSRIs and mm -hmm. SNRIs. Uh, we use antipsychotics wrong. We use opioids wrong, wrong. The pharmaceutical industry is a horrendous industry in so many ways. That does not mean that vaccines do not work. Right. And the ways that media and social media are set up completely lack nuance. In fact, one of the only mediums I think we have for nuance at this point is long form podcasting, where you can mm -hmm. actually get into conversations. But the ways that we actually communicate for the most part online don't allow for that. And that's really problematic. And when you have a culture that is used to sound bites and not actually reading long studies and books and many books and weighing out the options, uh, you find yourself in this situation. And so especially in the wellness industry, there's this conflation with this idea that anything that comes out of the pharmaceutical industry is nefarious and probably going to damage your health, whereas that's simply not true. Vaccines are one of the most beneficial and efficacious interventions we have ever discovered <laughs> as an animal. Yeah. And and but we've buffered up against this moment in time where not only do you have a distrust and as you mentioned, a rightful distrust mm -hmm. at times, but you also have the main influencers who are monetarily incentivized to Absolutely. sell you supplements. Absolutely. So if their if their downline depends on you believing that your immune system is going to be cured by this supplement and that this other thing from this evil agency is going to hurt you, well, that then you know what story they're going to put forward at that point. Yeah, I it, it's really fascinating because I've seen, you know, this phenomenon, uh, the the grains of it for some time now. I'm a uh, vegan and I have been for eight years. So I remember there's this very there was this very popular vegan YouTuber who was she specialized in like raw food um, who years ago was <laughs> was promoting products that were sold by Alex Jones <laughs> and Infowars. Um, so the connections have always been there. But yeah, it's it's very it is difficult because there like obviously it's it's such a complicated issue because there are so many ways in which um you know the government and the USDA and the FDA have like lied to us or you know I had Patrick Ryden Keefe the author, author of Empire of Pain on um a few months ago and we talked you know we talked about this about how the the fda kind of speed tracked uh the approval of oxycontin and uh then the that was used as like a selling point for oxycontin for so many years like oh it's never we've never had a uh a speedier um trial to market uh pill than this because it's so effective and it's so powerful and it's very hard to you know it's it's hard to have that coexist in your mind with the fact that also 
vaccines are one of humanity's greatest achievements. Uh, and I mean, the profit motive thing, I think, has like a lot of obvious holes, one being that um, for vaccines in particular is that they're mostly free um, for the average consumer. And the people who rushed to get them first largely were rich and powerful, like the people who some of the first people who received vaccines in this country for, for COVID anyways, were our uh, legislators uh, at the federal level, um, including almost all Republican legislators. Um, you know, Donald Trump famously got vaccinated pretty much as soon as he could. And so it's just been, there's just too much to wrap your arms around. That's how I feel. Every time I like think I try to wrap my mind around this, I there's too much. How do you do it? Well, the Oxycontin trials were rushed. Uh, the Xanax trials in 1980 were botched. The yeah. recent ketamine trials were botched, but that got approval, which I fear is going to do greater damage to psychedelic therapy in the future, especially because ketamine is a disassociative and not a... Uh, an actual psychedelic. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of conflation of terms that happen in the pharmaceutical industry. At the very least, the pharmaceutical industry is regulated. The supplement industry is not. I mean, right. it's lightly regulated, which rarely Barely. results Barely. Yeah, in enforcement. And so when I hear this, you know, constant idea that the pharmaceuticals are only for profit, and in many cases, again, it's true, but Vaccines, um, just in general, comprise about 3% of the profit every year for a pharmaceutical company. They're going to make a lot more money on opioids mm -hmm. or on Viagra than they're going to make on vaccines. Um, you will hear an argument that it it's free to the consumer, but it will have to come back out of taxes down the line. But the, even that fails when you talk, because Matthew talks about this in Canada, medicine is socialized. Mm -hmm. So it's just absorbed by the cost of the entire system. And so there isn't this crazy profit motive that exists for these companies. Um, that doesn't mean that they've been rolled out correctly or that, that there has been equity in who's received them around the world. But it is not this nefarious machine in the ways that the anti-vaxxers put it out, uh, claim it to be. Um, and how to handle it overall is is challenging and there is compromise and sacrifices one i think of often is that uh, i went through cancer about six years ago and my oncologist and doctors that i know and trust and i worked in an emergency room for two years so my whole life has been around the medical system in various ways as a patient and as someone who's been in it uh, they will tell you that chemotherapy is not the best solution to treat cancer, but right now it's one of the best that we have. And like anything, decades from now, there will be better interventions. And mm -hmm. at, at the very least, good researchers and doctors are honest with that information. Whereas in the space we cover, even though most of those supplements are placebo at best, and possibly dangerous, although mostly not, but for some of them, yes, down the line, 
you will I, I at least in my experiences, I have never seen an influencer come and say that, oh, you know what? I was wrong about that supplement. It actually doesn't work. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't happen in this space. Um, and there, at least with more traditional medicine, it's called whatever you want to say. Uh, there is a little more humility than I find with a lot of these wellness influencers. Oh yeah, um, absolutely. I th- I've been, you know, obviously I'm a I'm a white woman in my 30s. I know uh, I'm very intimately acquainted with Goop, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's uh, empire of pseudoscience, and. Uh, she's, you know, she, that company's been sued for uh, their pseudoscience rhetoric and uh, propaganda. But one of the first things I remember um, is that she uh, promoted this uh, physician, quote unquote. He's not he was not an actual doctor who invented the celery juice blends um, and he is actually like I can't remember what his name is, but he calls himself the medical medium because he is not a doctor at all. He has no medical qualifications whatsoever. He says that he gets all of his medical knowledge from the beyond spirits. Uh, and this is something that she was promoting to millions of people. And I remember this was a few years ago. I remember being in a Whole Foods and it was completely cleared out of celery in a way that I had never seen before. And, you know, it was being promoted as a cure for all these like inflammatory diseases and uh, just a a cure-all, a panacea, really. And I just, again, you know, I will never blanketedly... uh, stand the pharmaceutical industry but your your point is a good one about the the honesty that they have about uh about medical about you know about pharmaceutical products i was on personally uh in my late teens and early 20s i was on accutane twice um and boy like accutane is essentially the chemotherapy of of acne treatments um it is really it's quite brutal on your body uh, and i i was on two rounds of it but they also heavily heavily monitor you when you're on it you have to get for women anyways you have to get pregnancy tests every month you have to uh and you have to get blood tests every month to make sure that your blood work is that you know you are closely monitored on it um i I haven't experienced chemotherapy myself, but I would imagine there's a lot more oversight um, on your your day-to-day levels than there is when you have obviously no oversight at all and you're just taking these supplements willy-nilly. Let's also think about nuance in something you brought up because it's something we covered three episodes ago, which was uh, veganism. Mm-hmm. I was a vegetarian for almost 20 years. I was vegan for two of those uh, I am not anymore, and it. The episode specifically was on eating disorders because I went through orthorexia probably for about fifteen years of my life, which is the um, conscious removal of foods with this 
con continual quest for optimal health optimal or health, purity, yeah. uh, something of that nature. Um, and I expressed on the episode, I think that veganism is a perfectly good diet for a certain subset of people who are committed to it and do it right. And it can also be an eating disorder for some people. And I put myself oh, yeah. in that category. And that, you know, it's possible to have conversations around how horrible factory farming is and subsidies around meat and the ways that we treat animals and also understand historically veganism is something new. Mm -hmm. And and these are all, I think, really important conversations. I really support pluripotent meat from stem cells and uh, any, any of the alternative uh, options are predominantly what I have. But there's this, at least with some part of the population, there's this uh, certain vigilance about it has to be this way. And it came out after that episode again. And it makes having actual beneficial conversations around supply chain of food, about mm -hmm. health, about what we put on our bod body is very difficult when when any sort of friction against your belief system is rubbed up against and sure. and that also translates to what happens with again pharmaceuticals i know anti-vaxxers who just will not put any pharmaceutical in their body and they're mm -hmm. and which if that has worked for them for their lives that's wonderful. You have you have a good genetics and you've lived a way that allows you to not have to run into medicine on that level. I think that's absolutely wonderful. But that might not that might change as you age. And the fact that some of these people are putting out the idea that the way that they live should be the way that everyone lives is a constant issue that I'm running into in the wellness community. It, it, it cuts across diets. It cuts across movement practices and ideas and philosophical ideas as well. And that's just really dangerous. I, I think it's really healthy to understand that there are many ways uh, in, in Taoism, they'll say many streams lead to the ocean. Mm -hmm. um, but we live uh, at least part, uh, you know, I, I don't I don't like to make sweeping generalizations because so many of our listeners really do have nuanced takes and when we engage in debates they're very healthy yeah uh, whereas we're both actually talking to one another not at one another but all of these topics we've talked about so far in this particular social media environment are very difficult to have when people are constantly just yelling at one another oh yeah and you know i made the mistake again i've been vegan for eight years and I made the mistake of um, tweeting once. Well, there's there's the mistake in and of itself. Never tweet is the is the old adage, uh, tale as old as time. But um, yeah, I made the mistake of, of tweeting about how I was once in a an environment where it was not an option for me to eat anything vegan if I wanted to eat at all. So I just ate the like vegetarian option that was afforded to me and the absolute deluge of uh responses that I got were tough I mean I and I guess that I should clarify because they would want me to that I'm I'm technically whole foods plant-based I'm not actually uh the the most strict version of uh vegan 
that like the vegan community uh, or the loud and annoying vegan community would would like me to be um but yeah i think that's been something that's very interesting in my my own practice as well i've had to um you know i've uh, i uh also i had an eating disorder for 15 years of my life as well and i've had to kind of extrapolate um what i want to take from the way that i eat and like make sure that it is it's doing it in a way that is ultimately serving me and is not just a means of control uh, in the way that my my eating disorder was. Um, but yeah, I mean, veganism is another thing or but I'll just say veganism for expediency, but it's, uh, you know, there is a lot of truth as, as you were talking about, like the way that the... Uh, you know the the subsidies that uh, that farmers who raise cattle for slaughter get, and also the you know the American Heart Association receives money from the meat industry, and therefore they don't discourage meat eating uh, in their guidelines. And all of the it's things are hard out out here. Everything is so complicated and nuanced, and resists a facile explanation. And and but is indicative of a culture that has too much and maybe a world that has too much. When you have so many options available, it sets you up for a neurosis around it. Mm-hmm. And that really hit me when I was practicing a lot at Jiva Mukti in New York City, which I did some work for them. And I never taught there, but it was just part of my community. And I'd practice there often. A lot of my friends were instructors they make their instructors be vegan, which some adhere to, some do not, but don't say that. And you can't wear leather in the studio. They have, you know, and that's all fine. If that is your ethos and that's what you're moving into, then that's totally acceptable. That's your, that you've, you set up your, your boundaries. But I'd go to special events where one of the founders would make everyone chant, I will be a vegan, things like that. At the same time, I was traveling a lot to Morocco for my work in journalism. And so I Mm -hmm. went like four times over a brief period of time to all different regions. And so you have these ideas in your head about how you're supposed to live in the diet you're supposed to have. And then you're walking around a foreign culture and you're walking through the Medinas where all the commerce happens and you see the disparities in the way that these cultures live as compared to yours. And I would walk through and think, how does what these people back in New York are saying are universal principles that everyone should adhere to? How does that even apply to where I am right now? And Mm -hmm. it it doesn't. And that was part of the rift uh, when I really moved out some of that, moved out of some of that indoctrination phase that the American wellness community puts forward as some sort of objective reality that everyone needs to adhere to rather than just a subjective reality that a small portion of people can actually afford to live uh, in their lives. Right. And I will say, yeah, veganism as it is, you know, kind of sold to consumers is often uh on the backs of like pretty expensive products for the consumer. But historically, like a plant-based diet has been 
like certainly veganism is new, but like a diet that is mostly plant-based is all over the world has been like poor people's diets. Um, and in a largely plant-based diet with like minimal animal products is still to this day, uh, all over like the Mediterranean, the, it's in a lot of places in the world where people live to be in their eighties, nineties, hundreds. Um, so I don't know. I, I still, I still have a lot of, it's just the way that I like the way that I, uh, eat now is just the way that like makes me feel good, but I'm certainly not proselytizing at all. I think this is maybe like the second time that I've ever said I'm vegan on this podcast. Um, most people, when they find out that I am, they're like, Oh my God, I had no idea. I'm like, yes, I've done the, the impossible. I've been vegan without advertising it to people. But it does offer a good lens into a lot of the wellness community and not even specific to veganism, just the fundamentalism that exists in these spaces yes. and the way that translates across domains into many of the issues that we talk about on conspirituality. Totally. Um, yeah, so there was, there was one of the, there was something that was touched on in, uh, in the interview, uh, on the last episode with Lee McIntyre that I thought was really interesting. We haven't talked, we've, we've talked about him maybe a few times, just touched on him briefly here and there, but the idea of the contrarian scientist, um, and how, powerful those um characters can be uh the most famous of which is probably andrew wakefield who was the discredited and uh disbarred what is the what's the stripped he was of his, disbarred he was disbarred, disbarred yeah it's stripped of his medical licensure um disbarred uh doctor who um made a false connection between the MMR vaccine and autism uh, using a completely faulty uh, fraudulent study. But he is still making the rounds. He's still kind of like a hero in the anti-vax community. Um, not kind of, an actual hero. And I really, I have to say that I really thought that anti-vax, the anti-vax phenomenon, maybe 10 years ago, I was like, this will die out. This will, you know, this is like a specific group of weird, loony white moms who, and like Jenny, Mac led by Jenny McCarthy, who, you know, will eventually be drowned out. And I was so wrong. Uh, it's only seems to have grown um, in a way that's pretty scary. And again, especially being that vaccines are arguably humanity's greatest, greatest achievement. <laughs> um, and it's just 
it continues to have so much momentum. Um, obviously, the pandemic, uh, I'm sure, poured gasoline on that fire. Um, but from your observations, what do you see as the reason that the anti-vax movement has continued to flourish? To go back specifically, what Wakefield did was handpick the children for the study, which is never what happens in a scientific study. Mm -hmm. Handpick, look for around the UK, the children that he wanted included for this specific condition. Uh, had the parents lie about when the actual um, um, problems were coming, the timelines were all off. Uh, 12 of the 14 authors of that paper retracted their support for it shortly after it was mm -hmm. published. And at the same time that he was publishing the study, he had filed a patent on his own vaccines. Yes. So the idea that like this was anything other than it was and the fact that he continues to be an influence and move to Austin of all places about probably a decade ago to escape the UK because he had lost his license and now just monetizes, continues to monetize people's fears. The fact that Brian Deere's reporting exists and that you can read the book or any of the articles he did and clearly see what Wakefield did People aren't interested in that. They just, it's a simple story. People like simple stories. Autism is increasing. There's a problem. Vaccines cause it. Okay, that's okay, done. All right, now we have a problem. We have it, even though- Wow, uh, what, an elegance, what an elegant solution. <laughs> even though thimerosal was removed from almost all vaccinations shortly after that study came out and va and autism rates have gone up since then mm -hmm. it none of it makes any sense so therefore you're dealing with the emotional appeal of the story and it gets back to what i had mentioned earlier about the origins of the podcast anti-vaccination efforts existed in louis pastor's day as soon mm -hmm. as he proved the efficacy there was anti-vaccination so that has always come and it it usually tracks along with cultural rifts, like points in the culture where a lot is being questioned. So the last real anti-vaccination movement was during the civil rights era. Mm -hmm. And and then it kind of died down and then Wakefield and then it kept ramping up. It should be noted that the main players in this have financial ob uh, obligations to help to push this message forward. It's never benevolent. Right. And you get to this point where you hit this really interesting and frightening juncture in American society where you already have this rift happening between liberals and conservatives and conservatism doesn't mean what it did <laughs> for no. most of my life. And and in some ways, the far left doesn't either. It doesn't really represent the diversity that of opinion and thought that had um, been what I thought a progress in our society, although I would say that the the far right far outweighs the problems with the far left, mm -hmm. my opinion. Uh, and you you reach this point where this idea of individual liberty is already a touch point. And that really is where conspiritual, conspirituality happened. 
is around this idea of bodily sovereignty, mm. that you know what's best for your individual freedom. And somehow that translated into that includes the medicine you put inside of yourself. That is also part of your decision. We're also watching it in school boards where oh, parents yeah. know more than teachers. Like mm -hmm. it's this whole idea that the individual is an island that knows what is best, even though the group think within that community is very transparent. Um, so it's not just one factor that comes into play, but it is the lack of as I mentioned, political engagement, and I'm including within political engagement, public health understanding. Mm -hmm. um, when you don't have to worry about your water supply being tainted, when you don't have public health concerns in general, the first time you run up against one, you're not going to know what to do. And again, living especially in Los Angeles, where the wellness community has proliferated for a long time, with its insane ideas and adaptogens and nootropics and all of the money that goes into that, uh, they were very susceptible to these ideas that there's this evil agency out there and anything they sell you or give you for free is going to actually harm you and it's all about control. Mm. Um, sadly, I just, <laughs> as I get older, I'm 46 now, and as I continue to age, I just feel like I never really left junior high school. Yeah. <laughs> like the, the, the attitudes and the way that people operate, I feel like it really still remains there. And that's so disappointing. It really is. One of the examples that I think either your co-host or uh, Lee McIntyre said about as a response to the overall disbelief in the toxicity of our uh environment as it is and as you said the 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 first time you run up against some sort of health uh fork in the road being something like a vaccine i think lee mcintyre said well tell that to the people in flint michigan uh you know it's just i don't know the idea that all these ideas converging that and i understand like you know derrida and Foucault, uh, Derrida saying like there's no such thing as objective truth. Like there are a lot of these philosophical arguments are compelling in their own way, but they're being kind of turned on their head to you to be used for nefarious ends and you know possibly or actually deadly ends. Um, so I'm I'm just going to use the example of the the person who I know. Uh, again, I haven't really kept in touch with her. Uh, she's just, she's been in the, the wellness space for a long time. Um, I started to get, I started to feel like she was going off the deep end when she was talking about water fasting, which seems like something that connects many of the, the more extreme, uh, conspiracy ish people in the wellness industry. Um, but she, yeah, she has started reposting like memes and tweets from ostensibly uh, Republican alt-righty accounts. Uh, and she posted something on her Instagram story that was a meme. And I, I'm, I'll just read it. Uh, the Holocaust was legal. Hiding Jews was criminalized. Slavery was legal. Freeing slaves was criminalized. Segregation was legal. 
protesting racism was criminalized. Friendly reminder, legality isn't a guide to morality. And she posted this with the uh, her own caption of ready to clear out some followers like. So basically, she's like, this is the path I'm going down and you can either hop on or I'm not unfollowing her. I'm never going to unfollow her because I need to see where this goes. <laughs> um, but that well, first of all, that is, I mean, comparing any sort of like vaccine mandate or mask mandate to the Holocaust or slavery uh, or segregation is so offensive (laughs) in so many ways, but it's also just like patently false and it's just lunacy. It's just, but it's, it's, it's clearly meant to just be evocative and pull on people's, emotions of what they feel for the holocaust and slavery and segregation uh but they're i mean these are not analogous situations whatsoever uh but and it's very funny to me not funny but it's a lot of the people a lot of the you know alt-righty sort of people sharing memes like this i'm like 50 years ago you would have supported segregation Well, you said contrarianism, and contrarianism is currency in this environment. One thing that we observed, think about if you, if the pandemic hit. I remember on Sunday, I taught my two classes at Equinox, and then you know there was some concern. We had to wipe down everything, but there were no masks. This is before the lockdown started. And then Monday, I lost a job. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife was an events director at a hotel. She has moved on to another career. Like it, it, it was a day that things just changed. Now, fortunately, I work in tech as well, and I, I've kept work, so I, I'm fortunate in that sense. But if I was purely a yoga instructor who relied on group classes to make my living, that would have been especially disconcerting at that time. And if you are in that space and you rely on eyeballs, attention, which is its own economy and currency, and you can offer, again, supplement sales, workshops online, classes, whatever that is, and then all of a sudden you see a number of people using these specific hashtags around child sex trafficking Mm -hmm. or anti-vaccination, and you start using those hashtags and talking about those topics and you watch your follower account grow by thousands and tens of thousands, Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden you have a lot of engagement, and then maybe you're making some more of your money this way. I think it is a blend between people who really do feel these things and then other people who just jumped on that to monetize their streams. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's not always easy to tell which are which, and sometimes... There is an indoctrination process where maybe they've started to enjoy the attention, but then they noticed the more they spoke out about this topic, the more eyeballs on them, the more affirmations they received. And then they actually did indoctrinate themselves in that sense. And they really did start to believe it. And all of those are rooted in that sense of contrarianism because the mainstream media, which I don't actually believe is a thing, but... (laughs) 
the, the main, I mean, there, there are a number of competing news organizations. They're not all working in cahoots. They're trying to break stories, which is its own problem is rushing to break stories. But, um, when, when Joe Rogan's podcast, you know, you can download 10 X over what the New York times podcast is getting download. Who's really the mainstream at that point. I know. I think about this all the time, especially when he talks about, uh, when he talks about cancel culture, I, uh, he's like, you know, white men aren't going to be able to, aren't going to be allowed to speak anymore. And I would say, you are the most popular podcast host ever. You have more listeners than worldwide than pretty much any single human being. And you're complaining about not being able to speak. Everyone listens to you. And also, I do think that Joe Rogan needs to be, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow is very obviously a, uh, you know, for good reason, a target in these sorts of pseudoscience uh, uh, conversations. But I think we need to put Joe Rogan right next to her because, and he arguably has more of an influence, uh, much more of an influence than she does. He is certainly a much larger art audience. Uh, and, it's just he speaks with such certainty about things that he knows nothing about. Well, that that goes back to the episode I referenced on eating disorders. Um, in American society, one out of every three to four eating disorders is male, but only one in every 20 treatments is for a man, mm-hmm. meaning men who go to try to get treatment. And part of that is a is a problem of language. Uh, the wellness industry is predominantly female, and that is why someone like Gwyneth is going to get more flack as well because they look at her as the embodiment of this space and don't understand when Rogan goes on and does that ridiculous Instagram video he did and just spouts all sorts of pseudoscience. He's not held to the same standards. Um, in with eating disorders in females, they tend to manifest toward thinness, but in men, they tend to trend toward muscularity mm-hmm. and you can tell someone who's anorexic for the most part. Usually you can tell, but someone who just is looking jacked up and buff, you don't know that the steroids or the food that they're putting in or the disorder that they have, the neuroses around their body that they have, it's not as evident. So a lot of a lot of what you just said just really hinges upon the fact that American society is just set up to be much more critical of women than it is of men. And that's why Rogan seems to get a pass no matter what ridiculous shit he says. And it's just it's an it's never ending. And he also moved to Austin. So God bless uh, he and Andrew Wakefield, I'm sure going to have a, a ball together. Um but yeah, I mean, that also goes to the fact that only, I think only 3% of eating disorders are classified as anorexia. Um, most eating disorders are not visible to the naked eye. Uh, certainly, I my, mine was at its most severe when I was at, uh, you know, when I was much heavier than I am now. Um, and, but I only really started getting treated for it when it went in the other direction uh 
So it's it's all it's all a mess. I don't know. I I find it very Yeah, I mean, I also think of a lot of these like the keto diet, the paleo diet, all of these things as a kind of eating disorder. Any diet that discourages you from eating fruits and vegetables there's i don't know like my it's every i feel like every five years there is a new iteration of a diet that prioritizes um meat and animal products and discourages pretty much everything else and it just harkens back to like when my dad did the atkins diet in the mid the like mid 2000s and then ended up with kidney stones he lost a bunch of weight but he ended up with kidney stones because that's what happens when all you do is eat meat and cheese. Yeah, the keto diet was the last stage in my orthorexia. Coming out of veganism, it was into that. And uh, and that's when it when you're spending part of your day looking at the time, wondering when you can eat, or when you're... My entry point to it was back in the late 90s, early aughts uh, with the zone diet, where you're yeah. counting macronutrients to the nth um all of those are just problematic again for most of history you were right before when you said for most of history we predominantly ate plants meat was a scarce resource which which leads to the problems with our food supply chains that we have now and the way that we treat animals but the um the neuroses that happens around food when for most of our time here just getting food was the challenge mm -hmm. and the fact that humans have such a broad palate and can survive on such a broad range of things more than any other animal is incredible and then we start limiting it for these for these insane belief systems um it i mean we can get into a conversation about late stage capitalism and how that fosters that mindset yeah but but i, I it also just goes back to privilege and again not recognizing that such simple things as the fact that we can tr con tr control the climate in our apartments or houses mm -hmm. is a new thing and might be having a negative effect on our homeostasis, our internal ability to um, control our own body temperatures. Like all of these things play into health, but it's only, it seems to be only the extremes that we focus on, like the vaccinations, um, not the fact that pretty much very little of how we live is quote unquote natural at this yeah. point. <laughs> yeah. And also, I mean, the paleo diet was so it's so it was just it's romanticized, very romanticized. I mean, I just think it's very funny to romanticize an era in which there was like basically no lifespan. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. And yeah, you just like. I think about longevity a lot uh, and I I was just I just always think about the fact you would never see someone over the age of like 45 or 50 on a keto diet or a paleo diet they would die <laughs> like oh I don't know and to me I mean that's like they're there is a lot of, I mean, the, the entire like nutrition space is also really fraught um, because there are, 
there's there's a distinction between nutritionists and registered dietitians. Uh, nutritionists have a much lower barrier of entry, so it's just it, it's an environment that's also like rife with pseudoscience as well. And you know, and you know, going back to like the uh, contrarian physician, there are so many doctors who will shill for these diets, like an all meat diet or whatever. Um, when in fact, nutrition is really not a part of medical school whatsoever. Um, I think only, there's only like five hours out of the thousands of hours of, um, medical school, um, training and practice that is devoted to (laughs) nutrition, if that. So it's all a mess and it all seems, it, it definitely is it's most vocally perpetuated by privileged white women, but it is just this, it seems to be like a problem with an increasing scope uh, and an increasing fan base. And I, one of the things that I saw in the Harper's Bazaar article that is in your, your list of resources is the the often used talking point um about people getting their children vaccinated and there was that horrible cover i think it was newsweek or something like that and it was like a picture of a child it's like would you vaccinate this child ah oh. and the you know the the talking point used was uh like why would I light my child on fire to save yours or something like that? Like how, I don't even know how to respond to something like that. When I started in journalism in the nineties on staff at the newspapers, there was always someone who wrote the headlines. That was their only job. Mm -hmm. And the reason was that they didn't want redundancy across the different columns throughout the entire newspaper and you didn't want to reuse things. So that was the focus. There was a checks and balances that existed. And I'm not romanticizing journalism. It's always had problems, but mm-hmm. there, there was just a l- little bit more integrity that exists now. Now the drive to monetization is to just have the most outlandish talking points, even within major news outlets, uh, the Newsweek specific one that you're talking about being one of them. It, it really, it, it's such a lack of responsibility when that is being treated as if it's actual, it's actually useful for anything. Um, Eula Biss has written about vaccinations, I think, better than anyone else, her book on immunity, where she really talks about the struggle of being a young mother and seeing a needle put into your child and, and the, mm-hmm. even the image like it's it's emotional. It's it. There's something tribal about it. You feel it, and it it has its challenges. But she weighs that against her father being a physician, and she weighs that what she knows against medicine and the and the groups that she saw turn toward anti vaccination at that time. So what you're referencing is very much an emotional appeal. In what you just told me, there was no discussion of efficacy of vaccine. Right. 
there was no discussion of what public health actually means and why um, I have an immunocompromised problem with a low white blood cell count. I'm generally healthy, but when I get sick, I tend to get sicker than most people. And it's something that I have grappled with my whole life. And when you are in that situation, it's we live by anecdote and it's hard to express to someone. It's not just about you all the time that, yes, a very small percentage of people will get harmed for some reason by this vaccine. That's part of it. And it sucks. Mm -hmm. And people are trying the researchers are trying to mitigate that sort of damage. But when you live in such a hyper individualist culture such as ours, yeah, it's it's hard to have conversations with people who are so consumed by their own personal lives that they can't understand the effects that their decisions have on the communities around them. Right. I mean, the complete uh, disillusion of the the idea of the social contract has. I, I think this is its its climax, if anything. Uh, well, be careful. It can get I mean, worse. No, you're right. <laughs> I, I don't know why I try to... I shouldn't speak in predictions ever again um, because I am always wrong. No, it, I, it just, I would say in my life it's the worst that I've ever seen it, but that doesn't mean it can't get worse. Right. It's just this, you know, as, as you touched upon, this just like the hyper-atomization of our culture and the, you know, beginning in not, not, I shouldn't say, okay, not necessarily beginning in, but certainly ramped up during like the Reagan years, everything was about get yours. And the idea of the nuclear family in isolation and kind of, yeah, just completely in a vacuum and not as it relates to other families. It's like, Oh, this is about my family, but I, I don't care about your family. There is some, yeah, the, I mean, that is what it's appealing to the, why, why would I set my child on fire to save yours? What? Like I first, it's just, it's such a, such a loony little idiom uh, that, you know, has no basis in, in reality, but I do. Yeah. I do think that this is uh, this is definitely the the result of a culture that prioritizes the self at all costs, and also it mixes in with that you know Republican rhetoric of personal responsibility, and there is a lot of that in the wellness community as well like that your health is the ultimate personal responsibility you are responsible for your health uh and i think one of the tricky things about the rhetoric that they use is the like i'm not brainwashed you're brainwashed have you had any success in your own life and people you know within uh in kind of bridging those divides i would say that We've had some listeners who have reached out and have turned our podcast over to people that were hesitant, not anti, and it helped. We've heard some good stories of that nature. Sadly, I think for the most part, the way that people are going to discover the reality of 
say what a, this virus is, is by going through it. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a family member who was not that anti, but truly was hesitant and just kind of waiting, got it and had a very bad response and is okay now. But just first thing they said was, okay, as soon as I'm in the clear, I'm going to go get the vaccine at that point, even though they had natural immunity at that time. Mm-hmm. But it's that understanding that it is another layer and probably the most important layer of protection you can have. Um, You hear all of these cases where people, as they're being intubated, are saying, this isn't real, this isn't real. That's how invested they are in that story. Um, There is uh, an influencer named Magenta Pixie right now who is anti-mask, anti-vax. Okay, love her name. (laughs) really bad case of COVID. I haven't checked in in a couple of days, but was in really bad shape and her followers were having vigils and all of this. And, and, and it was all just based around just like, if you would have got the vaccine, this would have not happened. Mm-hmm. Like we, it could be avoided. Um, one thing Lee McIntyre says towards the end and in our debrief after we discuss, I make the point that a lot of the interventions we discuss for whether it's coming out of cults or being indoctrinated or any of these antis and trying to help people is that when you know them personally, it's hard, it challenges you, but if you're invested in your relationship with them, you can hold a certain sort of space for them where you listen to them and just try to provide good conversation without escalating into your side. And that seems to help. The problem is that Digital spaces aren't set up for that. Mm-hmm. It's don't exist. Quite, we quite don't. The opposite. Yeah, we don't have any sort of blueprint for helping people through these mediums. Mm-hmm. It's they're still too new to us, and so I think it's going to be a constant work in progress. Um, but sadly, those uh, decisions that are made because of the digital spaces do have real life impact and i i'm just not as optimistic i guess as as perhaps lee and julian were at the end of the conversation we're hoping that headway can be made uh, i hope so for sure but i still feel that until someone suffers the consequences of their actions they don't learn i completely agree and i'm just thinking about this uh, this tweet that I saw in response to the the Newsweek cover, would you uh, vaccinate this this child? Uh, Jessica Valenti, who is a journalist and author, uh, quote tweeted it and said, uh, yes, because I have the picture of my daughter being intubated and that's worse. I and saw there, that, yeah. There were people who were, there were people in her mentions saying no one actually gets intubated. And the, I mean, at that point, are are there people who, are there some people who are just too far gone? Too far gone. I think something that isn't talked enough in this space is also the fact that there are foreign countries that are helping this process along. Mm-hmm. Like when you see an avatar with some made up name with three followers, like you don't know what the, if that's an actual person or if that's someone sitting on a troll farm who is specifically tasked to do this sort of work. Mm -hmm. And that is real. And when I see stuff like that, and because we get it too, 
Um, I, I mean, personally, I ignore it and I try to just ignore the sentiment overall, but I definitely ignore replying to those people. But you, you don't know where that's coming from and what yeah. the ultimate means for that are. And we're so, in a sense, like America is so big in the public imagination. Mm-hmm. And yet we're so insulated and tiny uh, in, in other regards. I think of a podcast that kind of we're friends with called Decoding the Gurus. And one of one of the hosts is Australian and the other is um, Irish and he lives in Japan. And whenever they're critiquing America, it's constantly like they're so spot on, even though they've only visited here, come here for extended periods, but not lived here. Um, America exists in such a vacuum that we can't see how ridiculous so much of our uh, of our banter is. Mm -hmm. And that means that a lot of people aren't going to understand that there are forces out there trying to do what we're going through right now for reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you can't really, we don't, we same thing. We don't have the means to counter that at this moment. Well, Derek, this has been a very depressing conversation. <laughs> I'm Glad I could help. very sad. Uh, is there any note? Is there anything that you are optimistic about in this sphere whatsoever. Is there any sort of uh, shred of light in, in all of this darkness? Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you invoked it before when you made those horrible comparisons of what we're going through to the Holocaust. Like the Holocaust was a real tragedy. By the way, I just want to clarify, I didn't make those comparisons. (laughs) Pointing out out that people made it. Yeah. Because we actually did an episode talking about that. So it's something we've we've touched on. Uh, and, And societies have survived far worse than what we're going through right now. Even though I'm still predominantly, because I work from home, my wife works from home, uh, my social life is usually working out and that's it. I am going out more and seeing, you know, uh, I think California has done pretty well with the lockdowns, even though, yeah, it sucks, but we're, we're the best in the country right now in terms of numbers. And I am going out more and, and seeing life again. And when I run into people, there is a genuine thirst for that, you know, connection. And my hope is that as we continue, some of this, uh, you know, conflict that exists in these digital spaces will be healed. Uh, I think it will. I think, you know, I've I've lost some friends forever and that's it is what it is. Yeah. But I, I, I think humans have endured far worse than what we've gone through right now. And, and so, yeah, I always have hope. I mean, I thankfully, although I, I think about these topics a lot, uh, I'm not a depressed person. Um, I have hope for the future all the time. And I think I think the healing will be done uh, regionally and with your closest people, which is yeah. what it should be. Uh, in terms of the digital spaces, though, I, I don't foresee a ton of good in in those spheres, at least for what we're talking about now. I mean, again, I work in tech. I I love technology and its products uh, and what it can do for people. But I also am aware of the downsides. And we're just going to have to grapple with those for some time. Well, Derek, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about these horrifying developments in the human race um (laughs) well thank you julia i enjoy the conversation very much is there anything that you would like to plug where can our listeners find you and your work 
Um, conspirituality is where everything is based off of conspirituality.net is the website. Um, and then we're on every major podcast service. So I would say, you know, we're, we predominantly post on Instagram. It's a vehicle that we use for video, audio, and, you know, memes, content, everything we do. So that brainwashing your audience. (laughs) (laughs) That's yes. That's what I, I do wish we had a better, um, network that we could use we're also all on twitter individually actually that's my favorite place to to have discussions yeah as it is well twitter twitter brought us together so it can't be all bad um derek thank you so much thank you so much for listening to reply guys if you like the show please rate and review us on apple podcasts and subscribe to our patreon at patreon.com forward slash reply guys where we have a catalog of over 25 bonus interviews with renowned writers journalists and comedians with an additional episode uploaded each week the show is hosted by kate willett and me julia claire our producer is genevieve garrity our theme song was performed by emily fremgen who wrote the song with kate willett our artwork is by adrian lobel if you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at O Julia Tweets, O-H Julia Tweets. And Twitter is where you can, of course, also find our reply guys. They're always with us. Bernie, take us out. walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land. This land is mine.